reading comes from the book of John, chapter 17, verses 6 through 11. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. This is the reading of God's word. That's good to <clears throat> see everybody here, um, especially as the weather gets nicer. Um, hopefully, uh, we get to enjoy more of the outdoors as much as we do indoors. But um, last week, we uh, heard from Pastor James from the book of Acts, and we're in the subject uh, of the church, and we're trying to understand what the church is a little bit more clearly, especially what Sojourner Church is and ought to be. And uh, James gave, gave a great exposition on, in, on the book of Acts, uh, the church's early church's devotion to the word, to prayer, to the breaking of bread, and to fellowship. And um, those are excellent uh, uh, I guess, characteristics of the church. But if you remember, if those of you who are with us, whether online or in person the week before, uh, this is the passage that I had looked at and started to look at when talking about the church. And, and um, as I resume and as we resume our subject matter here in the book of the church, I've decided to come back to this passage um, to look at this passage a little bit more carefully. And not just verses 6 to verse 11, but also the, the whole chapter, chapter 17. If you have a Bible or if you, you know, read your Bibles and you look at John chapter 17, what you see is that there's a title usually in a lot of our translations that says the high priestly prayer uh, of Jesus Christ. And uh, that's basically what this whole chapter is about. It, it's Jesus praying. And what we saw two weeks ago when we, we saw this passage is that we learned that the Son of God has to pray. And part of his role as a good pastor or a good priest is to always pray. And that's why when you read Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Hebrews says that he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And, and this is an encouraging thing uh, because you have someone who's always praying for you. And not just a, a few prayers, but always. He lives to pray for you. He's seated now at the right hand of the Father, and he is praying for you. And not just anyone praying for you. It's the Son of God. I mean, if God's going to listen to anyone's prayer, it's going to be his own son. And so that, that was meant to be an encouragement to us as individual Christians that Jesus is praying. So Jesus, as our priest, uh, as the title says, our great high priest, our pastor, we learn he prays for me. He prays for you. But what we see in John 17 is not only does Jesus pray for you individually, but here in 17, he prays for us. He prays for the church, and I think this is something worth noting, because oftentimes, uh, when we talk about you, that seems more relevant, right? That seems more personal, uh, maybe even more interesting. But when we talk about church, that, that might seem a little, little different, isn't it? It's a, it sounds like a different subject. It's a little less personal, 
uh, maybe less relevant, it's one step removed from just talking about me. And we love talking about me, but we're talking about the church. But here's what I want you to understand from John 17. I want you to understand that for Jesus, praying for you and praying for the church is inseparably intertwined. See, this is what he says to us individually. He says, he prays for us and he says, because of what I did, because of what I'm doing, this is how you individually should be. You should be growing. You should be changing. You should be loving. You should be merciful. Because of what I did on the cross, you should be more gracious. You should be righteous and holy, set apart for me, so that others around you, wherever you go, might see that you belong to me. So I'm praying for you, okay? But at the same time, if that's how we should be individually, when we get together with others, this is also how the church should be. That the church should be growing, the church should be changing, the church should be loving. Because of what Jesus did, the church should be merciful and gracious and, and, and holy and righteous, set apart just for him, so that others around us, us, the world around us, should see that we belong to him. So when you look at John 17, he isn't just praying for you individually, but he's praying for us as the church. And for him, it's, it's almost the same. It's intertwined. It's related. I've got three, points, three more points to look at here and, and uh, spend some time on application. But three quick points. One is this. First, Jesus is going away. Right? Second point, Jesus is going away for family. Third point, Jesus is going away to pray for his family. All right? So three quick points. Jesus is going away. Jesus is going away for family. And Jesus is going away to pray for his family. All right? So look at the first point. Where do I get this? Well, here is Jesus Christ. It's in chapter 17. Chapter 18, that's where, he, that's where everything goes you know, goes to hell. I mean, he's ready to, he's going he's gonna to get, you know, betrayed and the, the crucifixion comes and, and so on and so forth. This is his last prayer. So he prays to his father. And in verse 11 in our passage, he says to his father in heaven, I am coming to you. I'm coming to you. It's simple, right? He's saying to the disciples, I'm going away because I'm coming to the Father. Jesus, he says, is going to the Father. It sounds like a very simple point, but listen to me. You ever see that movie? And I might be dating myself here, but I mean, Star Wars, that's a classic movie. Everyone should have seen it. If you, if you are young that you have not seen Star Wars, you're missing out. But, you know, towards the end of Star Wars, you know, there's this showdown between Obi-Wan Kenobi and, and Darth Vader. I don't know if you remember this, right? And Luke Skywalker is there, and he's watching them, you know, do the uh, lightsaber fight. And I, what happens is, uh, I think Obi-Wan could have beat Darth Vader. But what he does is he refuses to continue fighting, and he surrenders himself, and Darth Vader knocks him down, right? And the question is, why? Why would he do that? And as we keep looking at Star Wars and the rest of the series, I think, I think it was because of Luke Skywalker that Obi-Wan did what he did. Luke was watching the whole fight. I think it was because Obi-Wan had a mission, we learn, that he had plans for Luke. And that allowing Darth Vader to kill him 
only moved Obi-Wan into a more powerful position within the Force. One position which would enable him to assist Luke in the future more effectively. And so you read the next movie or or watch the next movies and you see Obi-Wan keeps coming back, but he comes back in spirit. In other words, what we learned there in Star Wars, and I know it sounds kind of nerdy now, but Obi-Wan had to go away in order to help Luke Skywalker grow and thrive. Jesus in our passage in verse 11 says, I'm no longer in the world, and I am going away. I am coming to you, Father. Jesus says, I'm coming to you. How is Jesus going to go to the Father? Through the cross, through death. When Jesus says, I am going to the Father, he's saying, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to give my life. You see, Jesus had a plan. He had a mission. Jesus goes to the Father. Why? He goes to the cross. Why? To create the church. By living for the church and then going to the Father and go to the cross and then give his life for the church so that when you read the book of Acts chapter 2, what you see there is Jesus pouring out his Spirit to all the churches. The power of the Spirit. Like Obi-Wan Kenobi, Jesus has to go away in order that the church can grow and thrive. That's the first point. He had to go away. I'm coming to you, he says. But the second point here is this, that he's not just going away, but he's going away for family. I mean, if you read carefully the language of these verses here, in verse 6, he says, I've revealed your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me, and they've kept your word. In verse 6, Jesus says, you and I have been given to Jesus. We belong to him. And then in verse 9, Jesus says, those who you gave me, they belong to you, God. So Jesus says in verse 9, they're yours, Father. So we belong to the Father. Verse 6, Jesus says, they belong to me. I'm the Son. Verse 9 says, they belong to you too. You're the Father. It's an identity of belonging, but not just any kind of belonging. A family belonging. We belong to Jesus, the Son, verse 6. But we also belong to God, the Father, verse 9. Both the Son and the Father, we belong to them. It's like parents. Whose kid is this? He is ours. It's family belonging. And then Jesus says in verse 11, I'm going to go to the Father. I'm going to go to the cross. Why? For the church, to create the church, for those who belong to him. And notice verse 9. That's why he says, I'm not praying for the whole world right now. I'm praying for my family, for those who have been given to me. It's a family prayer, John 17. It's a family prayer. Why? Because it's a family rescue mission. It's a family affair. God tells his son, son, save those brothers and sisters. Bring them home. But the point here is that this language of family belonging is an identity that we have because God the Son goes to God the Father by going to the cross to make us a part of that family. That's why he prays, Lord, make them one as we are one. 
We're not only saved, but we are made his family. We are now sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. We belong to him as the church. And Jesus Christ is our older brother who comes from heaven to rescue people such as us by giving up his life. Jesus is going away, and he's going away to go to the Father, to go to the cross for his family. Now, here's the point of this, or the the thing that we need to think about. If this is true, one of the basic characteristics of family is that members of the family, in one way or another, kind of look like each other, right? Or at least maybe talk like each other, or even act like each other, or similarly think like each other. Not exactly, but, but there is a resemblance in family, isn't there? I mean, we see this all the time. And, you know, those of us here who have little children, and you see parents with their little kids, and you say hi to them, and the kids are so cute. Oh, he's so cute. He, she's so cute. Where did he get that? And you look at the parents, right? And you think, well, it can't be the father. It must be the mother. If it's neither, maybe an aunt or an uncle. I mean, you know, it, the point is, if it, there's a resemblance that we assume because of family. And if we are the family of God, I think what Jesus is saying, if we are the family of God, sons and daughters who belong to him, then that means this. Each and every one of us, one of you, the church, ought to resemble, look like, act like, maybe even think similarly, to our Father in heaven. Notice verse 11. There's, there's family likeness. Verse 11, he, Jesus prays, Father, make them one how? As we're one, like family. Give them truth. Verse 8, he says, give them the word, give them the truth, as you gave me truth, just like family. If you keep reading in this chapter, verse 18, uh, just as you sent me, I'm sending them into the world. There's a similarity, isn't there? There's a family likeness for those who belong to him. Now in verse 11, he says, I'm going to the Father. I'm going away. I'm leaving the world. But they're still here. And here's why it's important. Jesus created a group of people who are still here on this earth to look and resemble and represent God to the rest of the world. Jesus goes to the Father. He goes to the cross to create a people who are going to represent God the way he did. Jesus proclaimed truth. We proclaim truth. Jesus modeled love. We ought to model his love. Jesus transformed lives. We look to see lives transformed in work and ministry. I'm going away. I'm not going to be here. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the Father. But you are still here. We're family. We look alike. And so this is why I'm praying for you. Do you see how important this is? Look, if I'm not a Christian, if I don't see Jesus, if I don't know God, and you're the church, and you're supposed to be his family, then you're all I have. You're it. And all I know about God and all I know about Jesus is going to be through you, what I see in you, in your life, as people who say they belong to him. 
as individuals, as the church, as the family of God, you reflect, you resemble, you re- represent, you, you, you reflect him to people in the church, to each other. People at home, people at work, people in the world, you show who Jesus is. And I'm going to be very honest. I have a hard time with that, practically. It's not natural. Hey, I'm, today I'm going to be like Jesus to you. Today I'm going to act like Jesus to you. Today I'm going to show Jesus to you. I'm going to think, I'm going to speak. I'm going to... It's not natural. It, it doesn't happen naturally. It, it doesn't happen automatically, not even magically. It takes, to think like this, to do this, it, it takes effort. It takes intentionality. Sometimes it's a struggle, and sometimes it's painful. But it's not natural. It's supernatural. And that is why Jesus must pray. Moments before he leaves, moments before he goes to the cross, he prays for us because he knows that the struggle is going to be real and that this kind of living out family life in the church won't happen without his prayer. That's why James 5, 16 says, the prayer of a righteous man has great power and it's working. It's Jesus' prayer. Jesus has to go away. Jesus has to go away for family. And the last point, Jesus has to go away to pray for his family, which we just kind of mentioned already. This is why Jesus needs to go away to the Father for his family, not just to die for our sin and selfishness, but so that on the third day he rises from the dead, then he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he, there he is constantly praying, as Hebrews has said always living to intercede on our behalf, to equip, to spiritually empower us to be and to do what is not natural for us, but supernatural. To be like him, to look like him before one another and before the world. So he goes away to pray for his family. Now, let me spend some time on just one simple application. What does that look like practically? Uh, I'm going to be Christ-like. I'm going to resemble my Father in heaven to you and you to me. But what exactly does that look like? Let me give you a simple example. Um, Let me try to work this out this way. You know, in our culture today, uh, the idea of self-esteem is is such a big thing. And if you have kids or you have kids in school, you know that esteem issue is huge and it's important. And and our young people especially, I hear it again and again, seem to struggle with a sense of low self-esteem. And it's a problem, right? We don't want anyone having a low self-esteem. But here, I want you to think about this. The way the culture addresses low self-esteem is, is usually in two ways. Let me be a little colloquial here. Um, forgive me for my French. But low self-esteem basically says this, I suck. Okay? And I think the culture has basically two ways to approach that, and both are problematic. One is, tell them they don't suck. Tell them they're great. Tell them how great and special they are. And so you give them blue ribbons all throughout you know, school, and you make them all first place, and you give them all the awards, and, you know, and, and, and so we have a generation of people growing up being told that they're so great, and they're entitled, but really, they really suck. Because they're arrogant, and they're prideful, 
And I think that could be a problem. But the other option, the other way that our culture addresses low self-esteem is ask you the question, well, what are you good at? Everybody's good at something, and we just need to find it. You need to cultivate it. You need to grow it. You need to work at it really hard. You need to excel at it. And then you have something to be proud of. And fine, that's great. You know, hard work is awesome. We should always, you know, look at our gifts and look to strengthen them. But here's the danger. Here's the, here's the potential temptation. If we ever do find whatever that is that we think we're good at, there is also the temptation to pride and arrogance. We say, hey, look, this is what I'm good at. This is what I have. So I'm not insignificant. So I'm not underachieved. And then there's a temptation to look down the nose at others because you're not as good as this. You don't have what I do. And the temptation to pride just comes in as well. And this is why Christianity is different. And it's so difficult for many people, especially in our culture today. That's why Jesus says it's a stumbling block. Because Christianity begins with what sounds like low self-esteem. It begins with the statement, you're a sinner. And I need to retranslate that for us because the word sinner today is sort of watered down. No one has a problem admitting they're a sinner because that just basically means I'm not perfect. And I'm a sinner, but so is everybody else, so it doesn't matter. It's like your kid goes to school and he comes back with a C on an exam. But then he says, but you know what? Everybody got a C, so I'm not that bad. No, because a C still sucks. (laughs) Christianity says you're a sinner. Colloquially speaking, to, to, to me, I don't know, to get a little reaction from you, Christianity says, you suck. No, no, listen carefully. You, you, you really suck. I'm not talking about the people next to you. I'm not talking about the people in front of you. I'm talking to you. You, 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 you really suck. Are you offended? Because people used to get offended when they heard they were called a sinner. Christianity starts with that low self-esteem. And in our day and age, we don't like that. We get offended or we feel pressured to not suck, to get better or both. But here's why it's important. Here's why it's different. If you understand why Jesus has to go to the Father, why he has to leave, why he has to die on a cross, that he goes for sucky people, for sinners, then as a Christian, there's no way you could be arrogant. There is no way you could have pride. But there's a great humility that comes. And that kind of humility arrives at a far greater self-esteem than you could ever achieve for yourself. You know why? Only if I repent, only if I'm able to admit that I'm actually far suckier than I really think, can I really go to Jesus and can I really go to God and say, look, I really have nothing to offer but everything to receive. And then by faith and grace, I receive a kind of love, a kind of acceptance, a kind of esteem that is far greater than what I could ever achieve or even hope for. And that kind of understanding of Christianity makes a huge difference how we relate to people and show Christ to one another, 
especially in the church. You know, some years ago, I was talking to a, a, a non-Christian friend of mine. Um, used to be my roommate, actually, in freshman year and sophomore year in college. But anyways, uh, still non-Christian. You know, but we're talking. It's been a while. And, you know, he's talking about my faith. He didn't think I was going to be a pastor. Um, and so he was a little bit surprised. And we're talking about beliefs and, and things like that. And, and, and he said this to me. Um, so you got conservative beliefs, but you have a liberal attitude. And what that, I think he meant was, I think he understand what I believe, but the way I handle it or treat it, I, I seem a little more tolerant. I, I sound a little more accepting. I, I, sing, I seem a little bit more open to certain things, right? So in his mind, that's liberal. So he goes, which is it? Are, are you a conservative or are you a liberal? And it's funny to me how our culture wants to think in categories like conservative or liberal or somewhere in between. It's just too simplistic. But the truth is, for me, maybe I'm neither, or maybe I'm both. But what I know is this, and this is the truth. I'm a Christian saved by grace. So I believe in truth, that I'm a sinner, that I suck. That's absolute truth. I believe in doctrinal truth. I'm a sinner. But at the same time, as a sinner saved by pure and utter grace, not by my efforts or works, it's also inherently humbling. So yes, I do have strong beliefs, and in some people that looks conservative, but in no way can I be condescending about it. I can't feel superior to anybody because of this, because I'm saved by grace. I have to listen to people. I have to be more patient. I can never feel that I'm better than anybody else, and to other people, that seems a little more tolerant, a little more liberal. But the bottom line is, it's because I believe I'm a sinner who had nothing to give but to have to depend on and receive everything from someone else. And the Bible says if you understand Christianity this way, when a person is like this, when a person does this, there's going to be a fundamental change in relationships to people, especially in the church and as well as outside. Look at our passage, back to our passage again. Verse 6, Jesus says something interesting that, that you need to kind of pick up because you can just read over it quickly. He says, I revealed your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours were theirs, or yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now he's talking about his disciples, and he's summarizing the disciples' life. These you've given to me, they belong to you, and they belong to me, and they have kept your word. They obeyed. You know why that's crazy? Because if you read the Gospels and you look at the disciples and what they do and what they say, I, there's not many places I see them keeping the word. It's moments before Jesus dies and this thing that he says about the people following him, those guys who, who, who said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing, right, did the opposite thing, he says, they kept your word. I mean, how could Jesus say that? They're fighting. They're getting things wrong. Peter denies him. Judas betrays him. All of them forsake him later on, right? I mean, think about this. Moments later, after this scene in John 17, you read Matthew 26, and he goes to the garden. And Jesus asks his disciples, I just want to ask you one thing. This is going to be the hardest thing in my life. Can I just ask you to stay awake and pray? And what happens? He comes back, and they all fall asleep. 
And if I was Jesus in that situation, I would have said, look, you, you guys really suck. Right? You can't do anything right. You've never done anything right. I'm about to go to the Father. I'm about to die. I ask you to do one thing, and you can't even do that. You know what Jesus says to them? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Translated, I know you've got good intentions, but it's hard, isn't it? How do you respond like that? How can Jesus say they obeyed? How can Jesus... Say it like this. At least call them out on it a little bit more. How, how can it be so nice to these people? How do they obey John 17, verse 6? How do they really, on a good day, maybe they did once in a while, but a lot of times, no. That's a generous statement. How could Jesus overlook all that they did, all that they said? How could Jesus overlook all that they will do wrong and be so patient I mean, isn't God holy? Can he stand one iota of wrong or disobedience or sin? How does he do that? And the answer, I think, to why Jesus can be this way is what we've been saying throughout this whole sermon, verse 11. Jesus can be that way because he knows he's leaving and he's going to the Father. I'm going away. I'm going away through the cross. I'm going to the cross. The reason I think Jesus can be so patient and kind and listening and overlooking and never just berating everyone else around them, never just criticizing everything around him, the reason he can do this is because he's the high priest. He's the ultimate pastor. You know why he's the ultimate pastor? Because he himself is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the sacrifice. For the wrong, for the disobedience, for the apathy, those sins now are now covered by his own blood. Look, sins matter. Just because you say grace, it doesn't mean sin doesn't matter. It matters because look what Jesus had to do. He had to go to the cross, and he covered it. And with his life, they are forgiven. And that's why he goes to the Father. And knowing that, when his fellow brothers and sisters fail... When they don't meet family expectations, when they fail to represent, when they do completely the opposite, he doesn't just let it out and let them have it. He doesn't just kick them to the curve and say, forget you. He doesn't point his finger and shake his head. And even when he rebukes, it's with love and gentleness. Why? How could he do this? Because Jesus is going away to the Father, to the cross, for their sins, and they are now a community of the forgiven. Are you Christian today? Are you forgiven? Are you the church? Are you the family of God? Are you the brothers and sisters of Christ, the sons and daughters of the Father? Do you, do we belong to him? Do we resemble, represent him? Not just to the world, but even to each other? Then stop criticizing each other. Stop wagging your finger. Stop shaking your head. Stop looking down on one another because of what you have or don't have. Don't just let it out and let them have it. But be a community of the forgiven.
Be generous to others as Jesus was generous to his disciples and to us. We should. But Jesus is saying we can. Because Jesus, our high priest, went away to the Father, went to the cross, covered all of our sins, calls us his family, and now with his Father up there in heaven right now, he is praying. He is praying for his family to resemble, to represent him here on earth with each other and with the world. Trust in that promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, we also recognize it's probably one of the most neglected things in our faith, in our walk with you, but uh, it still speaks. It's still relevant. It, it still shows us with clarity um, not just who you are, but what the world is and what we are. And um, if we only see through the lens of Scripture what you see, Lord, every day we would be on our knees praying for your grace, praying for your forgiveness, asking for your strength. And yet, Lord, what we do is we only come to you when there's something really, really hard. And when that's done, Lord, we go on our lives and we think everything's under our control. And over and over again, you teach us lesson after lesson that we're really not in control of that much and that we really need to trust in you more. And as we see that, Lord, uh, we trust in what God has done for us. We trust in what you've done for us. We trust in what Christ has done for us, that we still belong to you. We still are a part of your family. No matter what happens around us, we have someone we turn to. We have someone who prays for us. We have someone who promises to us, Lord, that all things will be done for our good and for those who love you. And we trust, Lord, that you're building in us a kind of faith that is convicted but humble at the same time. The kind of faith, Lord, that stands its ground in truth but gracious, patient, merciful in its application. You did that to your own disciples. You've done that for us. And in this way, we reflect, Lord, in humility, the family likeness that you have demonstrated for us. Give us the grace to do this. Help us to start with the people closest to us and then look beyond the walls to the rest of the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.